Welcome to the South Carolina State Library's podcast, Library Voices SC. I'm Curtis Rogers, Communications Director, and today I'm pleased to have with us in our virtual podcast studio, Claudia Smith Brinson. Claudia has been a South Carolina journalist for more than 30 years. She has won more than 30 awards, including Knight Ritter's Award of Excellence and an O. Henry Award for Short Fiction, and she was also a member of the Pulitzer finalist team covering Hurricane Hugo. Her recent book, published by the University of South Carolina Press, is titled Stories of Struggle, The Clash Over Civil Rights in South Carolina. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Curtis. I'm so happy to be here with you. It's great to have you here. And one thing I failed to mention is that Claudia and I also served on the South Carolina Academy of Authors Governing Board for a number of years. So we know each other through that as well. So let's jump right into stories of struggle. How, how did you come about for the idea for this book and, and what's it all about? My family is from South Carolina and right across the border in Augusta, Georgia, but I grew up as an Air Force brat. I lived um, something like 23 places in 21 years. It was ridiculous. My father had itchy feet. So I had sort of a double way of viewing South Carolina when I came here and became a reporter at the Columbia Record and then the state newspaper, which is I knew a lot about South Carolina from my family, but I was also new to South Carolina. And quickly I noticed that the black people I talked to had completely different story about civil rights era than the, the white people. And that intrigued me. And I knew that there were white-owned papers and black-owned papers. And so there was uh, a separation of the stories in that way. But there also was the obvious risk of a black person telling the truth and putting his or her life in danger. And so I made it a point to start interviewing um, African-American elders. And along the way, uh, someone at USC Press said, this is a book. And I said, Hey, yeah, this is a book. And um, I, I, I would say that there was also almost a spiritual component to this, that a lot of the black elders that I met were some of the best people I have ever met in my life. And it felt wrong to me that their stories would die with them. And um, so there, there was a quest aspect to this that I embraced. Definitely. And um, tell us a little bit about the title. I know a lot of times publishers come up with titles, but how, how did stories of struggle, the clash over civil rights, in, civil rights in South Carolina, how did the actual title come up? The book is not written like a history book. I'm not a historian. I'm a journalist um, and a storyteller. And what I was interested in collecting was not a year by year, event by event collection of historian's view of, of civil rights in South Carolina. I wanted to respectfully collect the stories of the activists. And so it is a book of stories. It's not a march through history, but a way for you to meet people that you would not have met otherwise in history books or maybe in your life as a South Carolinian. And I wanted to make sure that people understood along the way how extraordinarily difficult it was in the 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s to be black in South Carolina. And the official story, the story that our 
leaders want us to believe is that South Carolina was moderate. That should be a familiar word to almost any South Carolinian. Well, it's not moderate to deny education to children for centuries. And uh, South Carolina was notorious for its lynchings in Reconstruction period. Uh, so there, there is a, both a uplifting and a depressing side to this story. The uplifting is how people persevered and how deeply they believed in the Constitution and their rights to be a full citizen. And on the, the darker side, there is the consistent uh, economic, uh, social uh, pressure placed on black citizens by white supremacists and also the violence that uh, occurred to terrorize uh, black people. It is amazing when we talk about these things, how all of the stories that, you know, go unheard. I mean, there, there are people who, the, the oral history has definitely been coming down through families. And it's so important uh, with what you've done to record some of these stories so that they're available for um, future generations. Um, what was your writing process like for the book? Did you, you know, sit down with individuals and record, do audio recordings and then transcribe them? How did that work? Well, this book took a very, very, very long time. Uh, we can measure it in terms of my lifetime or in terms of decades. Um, so my methods changed over time. Initially, I was interviewing the way a journalist would with my, um, my uh, note paper pad and my black ink pen. And um, along the way, I realized that this was a record of people who were very old and were going to die before I finished the book. Um, and that haunted me, of course, that uh, some people would never see this book. So I began doing recordings. And when a digital recorder was available, this shows you how long ago this was, I started digitally recording. And I'm, I am an organized person, so I had files for each person. Um, and then I started thinking, how do these stories fit together? And so the way the book is organized is you meet uh, Reverend James Miles Hinton, who was the second NAACP president for the state conference. He uh, was president from 41 to 58. And he really was incredibly vital to the NAACP's efforts to pursue citizenship rights through the courts. South Carolina played a very important role, thanks to Reverend Hinton, including with Briggs versus Elliott, which is the first lawsuit um, to comprise Brown versus the Board of Education, which many legal authorities consider the most important Supreme Court decision in the history of the United States and ended legal segregation of public schools. And so the second chapter is on the Briggs petitioners. And so the story of Brown v. Board has been told often. Uh, the story of Briggs is not told very often and it's certainly not told in terms of the people who signed the petition and then had to live in a town where people who controlled their groceries, their crops, their farm machinery were out to get them. The third chapter is on Reverend Cecil Augustus Ivory, and he was an elder in Rock Hill, but he was unusual in that when the students wanted to start the sit-ins, he was right there with them. He was wheelchair bound, and he would be leading the marches in Rock Hill in his wheelchair. He would get arrested. Um, in most of the other cities, um, students 
really didn't have much to say to the elders. They were impatient with them because they felt that the courts had been too slow and they really only wanted people to bail them out. So the book came about in terms of how do I turn these wonderful people, these collections of people into chapters. And my, my writing students would be smiling here because I used to always say form follows function and the function here was clear, was to tell these stories. So it's, I mean, it's fascinating how the way a book like this evolves. And by the way, I want to mention to our listeners that we will have a link on our podcast page to the book's website, which is actually just storiesofstruggle.com. And it's fascinating. I've been looking at it all morning and looking at pictures and and resources. And um, one of the things that I was fascinated by, if you can talk about for just a minute, you have under the section terrorism, you have the KKK, which I know a lot of people have heard of, but I don't think a lot of people have heard of the White Citizens Councils. What, what was that? I had never, never heard of that. So after Brown v. Board in 54 and 55, um, you may remember there were two decisions. One was uh, to declare a segregation of public schools um, unconstitutional. And the second was much criticized because it was the how-to, which was, oh, well, over time, maybe something will happen, <laughs> which didn't. Um, South Carolina didn't fully desegregate until um, 70, 71, 72, 73, around in there. So um, unhappy white segregationists in uh, the Deep South formed the White Citizens Councils. And the idea here was that you could uh, socially and economically pressure the NAACP members and others who were petitioning for the desegregation of schools because the minute that uh, Brown v. Board's 1955 decision was made, the NAACP was assisting uh, people in different school districts throughout the South to ask for desegregated schools. So the FBI was watching the White Citizens Council. They considered them a potentially violent group. Um, They were often described by wits and wags as the KKK in business ties. And in a town like Sumter, which had the state organization and was very close to Somerton where Briggs v. Elliott happened, you had the entire power structure. So in several cities, every lawyer, all the city officials were members of the White Citizens Council. And they would call in their black employees and say, You're, you have no job unless you withdraw your name. Sometimes if people withdrew their name, they still had no job. If you were a sharecropper, you were evicted from your land. If you were a farmer, you um, couldn't buy seed, you couldn't rent equipment. In the town of Somerton, the Briggs petitioners, the women were fired from their roles as housekeepers and maids in the motels. It was, uh, Somerton was on the route to Florida for uh, tourists. Harry Briggs, who was, the petition was Briggs v. Elliott, uh, he was a gas station attendant on Christmas Eve. He was fired from his job. His wife was fired, Eliza, from two jobs. Their son, Harry Briggs Jr., uh, received death threats on his paper route. So the pressure was incredible. It was, uh, it was violent. Uh, people would ride down um, the dark rural roads, firing guns into homes. Briggs petitioners who lived out in the country had their children sleeping on the floor um, because if they were near a window, they might, they might die. So uh, the White Citizens Council were really um, 
an outward face of the KKK. And it's not like it was a secret who was a member of the KKK. They might be wearing hoods, but very often people knew, um, for example, that law enforcement officers were members of the Ku Klux Klan. So in Sumter, uh, this continued. Uh, the WCC often wrote uh, front page stories for the Sumter Daily Item. And when the sit-in started, uh, the reaction was violent enough that uh, young women who were petitioning would be grabbed by men and thrown to the ground. Two were injured severely enough to end up in the hospital with back problems. So there was constant pressure. I talked to one of the child petitioners in Briggs who was telling me that she had gone to her doctor's office and he had a WCC sticker on both the windows for both the white and the black entrances. And so she waited till all his patients were gone and she confronted him about it. She said, how can you do this? Because she felt close to this doctor. And he said, I wouldn't be able to treat you if I, if I didn't belong to them. I would be run out of town too. And she took that home to her grandmother who actually was somewhat protective of the doctor. She said, we need him. And if this is what he needs to do to be able to still see us as patients, perhaps we have to accept that. So it was incredibly widespread, very difficult to object to when um, the people who control your food, your land, your clothing, everything about you are denying you opportunities. Uh, you know, the, really the only choice, which was something the WCC was aiming at, was to leave. And this was a way a lot of lawsuits failed, that the pressure or the violence would be so great that the petitioners would just move. They would go away and then the lawsuit might die. It's really an amazing story. And when I was at your website and I happened to look under the terrorism section and click on the White Citizens Council's page, the image that pops up of all of these people in this rally at the Township Auditorium here in Columbia, South Carolina, and this is in January of 1956, it's just overwhelming to look and see that black and white image of you know, these, these people. Um, and, and it just kind of takes your breath away. South Carolina was, a, is, was a small state. And within a year, 40,000 South Carolinians were members of the White Citizens Council. And archive.org, which is a wonderful website, has the FBI reports and you can look through those and um, find reports um, city by city on the members of the White Citizens Council the FBI described them as the upstanding citizens, <laughs> which uh, is a little unnerving. It is, it's scary, but you know, times, times were very different. And also what's scary is the more things change, the more they stay the same. Well, I, sh I should point out that in that picture that you looked at, Strom Thurmond, uh, Senator Eastland, Senator Thurmond, um, Governor Burns are all at this white citizens rally. Uh, there was blatant racism. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, the politicians, one of the ways they got elected because uh, blacks were prevented from voting was to tell white segregation, just like uh, Alabama's segregation now and forever. Well, it's a, it's a fascinating uh, part of, of our American history. And um, it's, again, just fascinating. I, I can't say anything else. What I'd like to do is uh, have you maybe read, uh, if you can, from your book, if you can 
maybe want to highlight any interesting stories that, that you think our people would like to listen to? Okay, I just told you a little about Briggs, so I think I'm going to read several paragraphs from um, one of the sit-in marches. One of the things that is very impressive about the sit-in movement of 1960 is that the students were being guided by Gandhi, who was the leader in India that managed to, uh, with nonviolent direct action, overthrow the British Empire. And students were reading about Gandhi. And so King was, Martin, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King was actually sort of secondary. Uh, and the Congress of Racial Equality was coming into, in, by invitation, to college campuses to teach students how to be nonviolent. It's, it's difficult. And uh, Gandhi argued that it's each individual returning hate with love and accepting violence and directly looking at the perpetrator with peace to convey their humanity. And so South Carolina students managed to do that. Um, and this is a little section from an Orangeburg march, which was a very large march. It was a couple thousand students. Um, Orangeburg had South Carolina State College, was, what is his name at that point, and Allen University. The students, well-dressed and instructed not to bring so much as a fingernail file, intended to walk again to Memorial Square, there to pray for equal rights and sing patriotic songs, then return to campus and class. That's not what happened, and consequently the nation discovered Orangeburg, South Carolina. I got in the march as it went by state, marching peacefully. We all knew always that we were to be peaceful and that we were to show dignity, said Loretta Thomas, a tiny freshman, all of 102 pounds. Her father, Charles Thomas, was an education professor at South Carolina State who was active in the local NAACP. We were just walking, walking to go downtown to the square. More than halfway there, we were met by the police saying, turn around, and by fire trucks. They told us, stop, turn around. We did not. We kept walking, but always peaceful. I could see how the fire trucks were lining up. You could hear some of the students getting fearful, and I was saying, move on, move on. We weren't loud, but we did start chanting, we will overcome, freedom, freedom, we will overcome. Lloyd Williams group walked just a few blocks past campus to the local Piggly Wiggly before the firefighters and police told the students to turn around. I was walking at the head of the line with a young lady, he told the New York Post. The police chief insisted I was the leader. I told him I was not the leader and that I had no right to ask them to turn around. Students behind him shouted, we are all leaders. If one is arrested, we will all be arrested. Police arrested Williams, then the police chief instructed, all right, get them, and then there was an obscenity. And firefighters turned fire hoses on the group, according to the post. One student had water hit his ear with such force, it began to bleed, and he stood there and took it, Williams said. No one ran away. The students stood their ground and kept pressing forward. They began to sing, mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Not only local police, but also SLED, which is the South Carolina Law Enforcement Division, and other cities, police and firefighters awaited the students, according to an NAACP report. Law officers lobbed tear gas at two groups. Firefighters turned their hoses on three other groups as they approached Memorial Plaza. The powerful spray hit Gilbert G.G. Zimmerman and knocked him down. The yearbook editor for South Carolina State, Zimmerman was fewer than four feet tall and he spun around like a top in the surge of water, Thomas said. The others surrounded him to save his life, really. 
the power of the water knocked down Willa Mae Dillard, a blind 17-year-old South Carolina State student who was then swept down the street like a match stem, according to Thomas Gaither, who was moving from spot to spot to monitor the protest. The police chief again asked student leaders to step forward and others to disperse. When the marchers didn't comply with either demand, all were arrested. Two officers lifted Cecil Williams, photographing the use of fire hoses from his crouch and shut him in their car, his film and Rolleiflex tossed into their trunk. Left alone and seething about his camera, he disconnected the wires to the police radio, ending the ability to receive or answer calls. Also arrested were 10 students attempting sit-ins at the Rexall and Crest stores. Before they reached the square, Thomas's group was told again to stop, to turn around. When the marchers didn't obey, they too were told that they were under arrest. The day was rainy and cold, and the fire hoses spray soaked to the skin many of the students. Even so, law officers ordered most of the approximately 500 arrested into the open-air stockade of the county jail known locally as the Pink Palace or Pink Castle, thanks to its fortress-like appearance. Newspapers throughout the nation published photographs of the neatly dressed students, the men in ties and overcoats, the women in church hats and coats, pinned within 10-foot-tall chain-link fencing. Um, I'll stop reading here and, and mention that I hope you noticed that the students, when they were told they were under arrest, turned around and walked to the jail. They accepted their arrest, and um, they were not being violent in any way. Uh, there was a little singing, and that was about it. And yet they were met by uh, law enforcement and firefighters with fire hose spray and freezing weather and with tear gas. And in some other places like Sumter, dogs were used. So I think South Carolinians think, oh, Mississippi, Alabama, that's where the TVs were. The TV stations were not in Orangeburg and Sumter. And so we don't have the film what we have are the stories. And it's interesting to me that that assisted South Carolinians in believing that they're a moderate, that when there's not that visual record, you think about the Edmund Pettus Bridge, it was a horrific event in which um, people, including Senator John Lewis, were beaten bloody. It was on television and it horrified the nation as pe they saw people on horses and people on foot beating to the ground other people. But in South Carolina, without that kind of record, you can sort of tell yourself, oh, it wasn't such a bad place, but it was a very dangerous place. And you mentioned about the, the visual record and you also mentioned Cecil Williams' name. And he was, you know, he is an amazing photographer and has a number of images during the civil rights movement in various times. And, and I, in fact, I will include a link in our podcast page to Cecil's works, because I think it's very important to share those. I consider Cecil one of my mentors. I would quiz Cecil about how I saw things. I would use his photographs um, to think about um, what he saw and what I was trying to describe. He's a very generous person, and now he has a civil rights museum that I encourage people, once it's safe to go in person, um, to visit, and they can see it on his website. Too. Definitely. It's just, just amazing stuff. So um, one of the things I like to do with people I talk to here, uh, since this is Library Voices, is ask if you have any library-related stories you'd like to share. And this could be something personal or professional or, you know, researching, uh, whatever you like. 
I love libraries. I was the kid who was in her bedroom, on her stomach, a black cat on her back, reading way beyond my years <laughs> for most of my childhood. And one of my first library memories was, I think we were in Japan, and the library was in a Quonset hut, and a Quonset hut looks like half a tin can. It was pretty basic. And I had read everything that was available to kids. So they let me go into the sort of adolescent area, and I read every Tarzan book there was because that's what was available. Did you know that Tarzan went to Mars? <laughs> so um, libraries are a lovely, wonderful place to me, and I, I've got a lot of help at South Carolinaana. Henry Fulmer, um, Graham Duncan, and Beth Bilderback, uh, who was the photography person, um, were so kind to me because I was coming in as a journalist, used to talking to people, and I, I didn't have archive chops, so to speak. And they, uh, being a cat person, I'll say that it was almost like, you know, having your, your wonderful favorite cat bring you a little mouse at the door, you know, a little treasure, because every time I would go in, they would have thought of something I might be interested in. And so it's thanks to them that I know that Thomas McCain, who was the Congress of Racial Equality uh, field secretary who trained on the East Coast, the students in nonviolent direct action, I got to see his calendars. Um, yeah, so there are many beautiful things at South Carolina that I would not have known initially how to find, that they would just come and say, you might be interested in this. You mentioned um, beautiful photographs on my website. Many of those are from South Carolina, but many more are from Richland Library. And this is both a good story and a horror story. Many newspapers threw away their film archives. And uh, that was going to happen at the state newspaper and people like uh, Margaret Dunlap uh, said, please don't do that, please give them to us. And so Margaret is um, archiving photographs from the state newspaper archive, and uh, you can go onto their website and find these uh, amazing photographs uh, that I'm using. And I'd like to mention here that in the 50s, there were photo photographers at the state newspaper that went on to National Geographic and Magnum. They were supremely good photographers. They were veterans of the Korean War, mustered out at Fort Jackson, um, had been war photographers and then brought those skills to South Carolina. So uh, there are some exquisitely beautiful photographs of what life was like back then. They're available thanks to libraries. Um, I also was forced later in my research to think about online libraries. I've mentioned archive.org. And I discovered in the more recent years of working on the book, uh, the Library of Congress and um, Richland Library again had historical newspapers up. So, and also Google has uh, historical papers on their news archive. So I could move from reading microfilm page by page, wheel crank by wheel crank um, at South Carolina to uh, keyword searches, which is very helpful on uh, websites. And so Chronicling America, which is the Library of Congress, as where you can find newspapers uh, stories. And then they also have, the Library of Congress also has an archive of photographs and you can see South Carolina in those photographs. So there are uh, more and more online, um, you can find 
historical artifacts that might not have been available to, uh, to us otherwise. I'd like to follow up with that. One of the things that I think uh, maybe a lot of folks don't know, and we probably should do a better job of promoting it, um, but uh, August of 2019, we announced at the South Carolina State Library the addition of um, a new database, which was the ProQuest Historical Newspapers Black Newspaper Collection. Uh, and so I'll include a link to this in our podcast page, but it's something that, you know, we have just a lot of newspapers included that are Atlanta Daily World, the Baltimore Afro-American, the New York Amsterdam News, the Norfolk Journal and Guide, and they cover years from 1893 to 2005. So, you know, it's really important that we're able to, as a library, provide access to this information. Yes, let me chime in on that. Um, White-owned newspapers uh, were actually censoring news about the civil rights movement. African-American-owned newspapers, um, particularly the Afro-American, which was in several cities, uh, would send uh, writers down to South Carolina. And then John McRae, who had run the Lighthouse and Informer into the 50s, um, became one of their reporters and editors. And so without those newspapers, you would not be able to get even halfway toward the full story because the white-owned newspapers were, not, were deliberately not telling the full story. So the, uh, having those newspapers at the state library is very, very important. Thank you. And you're welcome. And, um, you know, we've seen a lot of use when we um, originally announced this. Uh, so it's, it's certainly getting people to access uh, information that they need. Um, so as, as we wrap up our conversation, do you have any kind of uh, upcoming projects or, or events you'd like to mention? I, I think I should say that I'm learning how to Zoom. And if you have a book club, I'm free and I'm enthusiastic and I would love to come talk about my book with you. Um, USC Press has arranged for, uh, arranged for me to talk to Walter Egger. That will be November 13th. Um, the Women in Leadership, uh, South Carolina Women in Leadership has a book club. That's November 18th. Historic Columbia has hosting Cecil Williams and I to talk about uh, this book and Cecil's photographs on November 19th. And then in December, we'll skip Thanksgiving week. <laughs> in December, I'm um, going to be doing Zooms with the Fiction Addiction Bookstore in Greenville, uh, with the Charleston Library, with uh, itinerant books in North Charleston, and with Lexington Library. And I hope to do more because I really do want to spread these stories. As I said, the book came about because I didn't want stories to die with such wonderful, noble people. And um, so I, I want to carry their stories forward in every way that I can. Well, thank you. It's, it's very important. And I will mention again that the website for your book is storiesofstruggle.com and folks can order a copy there or definitely check in your local library and you can hopefully check out a copy there. So, you know, with your upcoming list of events, it sounds like you've got your hands full. <laughs> I'm it's, thrilled. It's, um, it's and I, I, there's certain people that I, I sort of call into the room with me, you know, uh, um, James T. McCain with Congress of Racial Equality, Reverend Hinton with NAACP, people who've been gone a long time, but I'm hoping that their stories will inspire uh, new people to uh, think about the freedoms that are guaranteed by the Constitution and, and work to ensure that all people receive them. 
Well, thank you. And thank you for your work on this project. And also thank you for being with us today. Thank you, Curtis. And thank you to our listeners. You can find Library Voices SC on Podbean, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio, or add us on your favorite podcast app. Our podcast website address is libraryvoices.podbean.com. We also love hearing from our listeners, so please send us your comments and suggestions for future topics. Library Voices SC is the official podcast of the South Carolina State Library. So until next time, this is Curtis Rogers. Thanks for listening. 